hope you enjoyed the first episode. This episode is where we get into the really tricky stuff. And in fact, this episode and the next cover what is probably the hardest material of the entire series. So don't get discouraged. It's tough for everyone and it definitely gets easier. And even if you don't feel like you understand it all, things will become more clear as we advance through the series. During this episode, Derek takes us through chapter 1 of Capital. He's going to be talking about some of Marx's contemporaries, namely David Ricardo and Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. You may be wondering, why do we care about these people? But just like studying and understanding any book, it's important to understand the historical context in which Marx was writing. Ricardo, who died just a few years after Marx was born, was one of the most prominent British political economists and therefore a bourgeois political economist. At the same time, Ricardo developed what he called a labor theory of value. Many people think this is what Marx built on, but it's important to note that Marx never actually speaks of a labor theory of value. Marx expands on rather a value theory. And as we continue on in this series, we'll see why. But Ricardo also was totally confused about rent, prices, profit, trade, and so on. We also hear a bit about Proudhon, who was Marx's primary adversary throughout his life, although they were actually friends for almost a decade in the 1840s. That ended when Marx published a book-length critique of Proudhon called The Poverty of Philosophy. It wasn't personal, of course. It was a serious theoretical and political disagreement that split the workers' movement over time into the communist and anarchist camps. There's a lot of critiquing Proudhon in this book, and especially in the Grundrisse. But here, the point is that Proudhon took the capitalist mode of production and its categories and forms, most notably the individual form, for granted. He wasn't a historical materialist, meaning that Proudhon didn't analyze the situation from the material reality of the relations between classes. So we'll work through some conceptual building blocks and definitions like use value, exchange value, value, and so on. But definitely hang on till the end when we see Marx's first writing about the communist future, which comes just after an incredibly important and still relevant section on commodity fetishism. So hang on tight, comrades. We'll get through this together. Time to dive into chapter one. You're beginning to hear alarm about a second mortgage shock. Last month alone, more than 70,000 families lost their homes. Stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. The coronavirus pushing unemployment to its highest level since the Great Depression. American billionaires have gained a trillion dollars in wealth just this year. Millions of Americans are receiving food stamp benefits for the first time. Would you swap working for a company in favor of living in a communist country? A surprising number of millennials in the U.S. would do precisely that. Welcome, everyone, to episode two on commodities. I hope you didn't find the chapter too burdensome and that any questions or uncertainties you have will be cleared up in this episode. So that said, let's get into it. Marx begins the chapter by noting that the wealth of capitalist societies presents itself or appears as, quote, an immense accumulation of commodities, end quote, which is where we start. 
Thinking back to the process of abstraction, it makes sense because when we look at the capitalist world, we see a bunch of commodities. And the way that we interact in the capitalist world is often through exchanging commodities. So commodities, their production, distribution, exchange, and consumption define our life under capitalism in many ways. You might have noted that the first citation Marx has here is of his own work. It's a funny move if he did it today, but he's building on his previous work, a contribution to the critique of political economy from 1859, which is a great book. So he begins by asking, what is a commodity? He says, in the first instance, it's an object outside us, a thing that satisfies human wants of some sort or another. And whatever the basis of these wants or needs are doesn't concern him, at least in this chapter. He says that this is the work of history or commerce, and to engage in an analysis at this point would be to prevent the abstraction process at work, because the use value of a commodity is qualitative. It changes over time. And as we'll see, the use value of labor power is absolutely crucial to the argument and to capital. So that's the sort of one exception here. The use value of a commodity is the fact that it has a utility, a usefulness in society. And it's qualitative, and oftentimes it can't even really be articulated. For example, you might use something and buy something, and you're not even sure why exactly you like it, right? And that's one of the reasons why Marx doesn't really concern himself with this. Now, the commodity, it's realized through consumption. And when we use commodities, we use the properties of the commodities, right? So in other words, there's something in the commodity itself, whether it be an object or a service, that and the uses is, is determined by the actual properties, right? So you buy a CD, or, you know, you download a podcast or, you know, a music song or whatever and pay a subscription to do so because of the actual qualities of the commodity. And the use value is not related to the labor time that goes into it. He says then that in the form of society we are about to consider, commodities are also depositories of exchange values, right? So he leaves the door open for a definition of a commodity that would only be a use value. And that is, in a sense, what they are under socialism. So Marx begins with wealth overall and their appearance of commodities. Then he gets into the commodity and he says that a commodity has to have a social utility. But then he abstracts away from that and then gets into the exchange value of the commodity. The exchange value of the commodity, it's a quantitative relation, which is dynamic, which changes in time and place, and so it appears as something accidental and relative. The commodity then contains these contradictions between use value and exchange value. On the one hand, the use value is qualitative. On the other hand, the exchange value is quantitative. It's useful and it's exchangeable. Neither of these can be realized at the same time. If I have a commodity, I can't use it and exchange it at the same time. I can't realize its use value and its exchange value at the same time. Yet use and exchange are obviously interdependent. In order for something to be exchangeable, it has to have some usefulness. I mean, obviously, nobody exchanges useless things. So in a sense, these are two different class viewpoints on the commodity. 
with workers being interested in use value and capitalists being interested in exchange value. So as I said, an exchange value of a commodity, it's a quantitative relation that's dynamic. It changes in time and place. But the question is, if use values are qualitative and exchange values are quantitative, then how can two use values be exchanged? Because in order for them to be exchanged, there has to be some commonality within them. The exchange value, he says, is, quote, only the mode of expression, the phenomenal form of something contained in it, yet distinguishable from it. This is labor power, right? Because this third thing that would make them equal, it can't be a natural, chemical, or geometrical property because those are the qualitative differences between use values. So it has to be an abstraction from use value. So what is common in commodities? They are values, being the products of human labor in the abstract. So Marx tells us that capitals are presented as wealth under capitalism on the first page, but very quickly we see that it's really labor and labor power. So how do we measure value or determine its magnitude? It's not by the quantity of labor spent. If that was so, then a pen that takes me two hours to make would be more valuable than the same pen that it takes you uh, half hours to make, right? And you could make something more valuable simply by working on it more slowly. It's also not by the particular form of labor expended. Instead, value is socially necessary labor time. Quote, the labor time socially necessary is that required to produce an article under the normal conditions of production with the average degree of skill and intensity prevalent at the time, end quote. This is determined by skill, science, the application of science, by education, by the organization of production, the organization of society, by workplace organization, the means of production, physical conditions. It also means the values change with changes in all of these, right? In changes with skills, education, technology, and so on. So the definition of value is socially necessary labor time. Remember this. So Derek, what is an example of socially necessary labor time? Is that like paying for a school or a car? So value is socially necessary labor time, which means two things. The first is that it has to have a use value for society. And two is that it's the average time it takes to produce any given commodity. And both of these things fluctuate. So let's assume I buy a car today at its value for $20,000. I mean, obviously I'm taking out a loan for it, but let's say the next year, the socially necessary labor time for the car has decreased and the price fell with it. So now I'm paying more because of the dynamism of value. Or let's say I buy a car, but then I move to a country where I don't need a car, right? Nobody drives cars because they have such good public transportation systems. So that's a case of the social necessity or the use value either going away or decreasing. And education is another good example, right? My first job out of undergrad was working at a physical therapy office and a gym. 
And the physical therapists who had been working there for 10 or 20 years, they had four-year diplomas. But the interns who were coming in, they were working on their PhDs because that's needed now to become a physical therapist. So that's a case of the socially necessary labor time for the production of that concrete labor increasing dramatically, right? Or it could be that the price of education is out of whack with the value. And I remember talking with a progressive lawyer who got her law degree in one gear, and she said, that's all you really need. But now it's two years, right? Sometimes three years. And so in that case, the price of the education is above its value, right? The real socially necessary labor time required for its production. And of course, if you pay for an education in something, and then when you graduate, there's no longer a use for that, it's a waste, right? And your education is a sort of non-value. But it's really different for the capitalists, which we'll see later on. If you can't keep up with the socially necessary labor time for producing your commodity or service, you'll be driven out of business. And this is what Marx will call the coercive laws of competition, and it's what drives the tendency toward monopoly as well as the tendency toward increasing inequality. The other reason that it's socially necessary is that the labor produces a commodity with a use value. In other words, a commodity that has a certain use in society. And therefore, if you produce something that has no utility, you've also produced something that has no value. In this case, it's literally a non-value. Or if you produce commodities that the moment of production, they have a usefulness, but later on, and maybe you sell some and realize the value, but then later on, they fall out of social usefulness, in which case they are literally not values anymore. This is part of what's generally referred to as Marx's labor theory of value. But Marx, as far as I'm aware, never used this terminology and instead just talked about value theory. So clearly, Marx is saying that value is socially necessary labor time. David Ricardo also had a labor theory of value, which held that the value of a commodity is the amount of labor that went into its production. Ricardo was innovating in response to those who held that value is totally subjective. However, Ricardo didn't understand the difference between price and value, which we'll come to later in chapter three, and he didn't have any definition of socially necessary labor time or abstract labor. It was a labor theory of value based on concrete labor. There are debates about the relationship between Marx and Ricardo relative to value theory and specifically whether or not Marx accepted Ricardo and built on him or if he rejected him. And this really falls on the fact that value isn't just produced, but also realized. So even if socially necessary labor time for a commodity during its production relates to a value, if it gets to market and there's no demand, there's no value. But as long as you know that value is socially necessary labor time, you're good to move on. There are important spatial differences with this too. Value as a whole today is internationally determined. Right? It's not just the socially necessary labor time in one country that determines it all. And this is one thing that tariffs try to do. 
if in the United States, for example, the socially necessary labor time to create a, let's say, computer is different than the socially necessary labor time created to produce the same computer in China, for example, then what tariffs do is they ultimately move the value in the United States to the same price of the commodity produced in China because they're ultimately taxing that and therefore it costs more. So finally, he says in this section that something can be a use value without having value, right? Air, soil, meadows. We get use from those, but they're not values insofar as they're not congealed human labor power. Something can also be a use value and a product of human labor without being a commodity. So when I make something for my friend, it's a use value, it's a product of my labor, but it's not a commodity because I haven't produced it for exchange, right? So a commodity, therefore, needs to have a social use value and it has to be produced for exchange. And one final note here is that exchange value is different from value but Marx will often use them interchangeably. And the main difference will come in chapter three when we discuss the difference between value and price. So moving on to the twofold character of labor, the next section. So use values we know are qualitatively different and so too are the kinds of labor embedded in them. This is concrete labor. It's the labor required to produce coats versus the labor that's required to produce linen, the example that Marx gives, right? These are each qualitatively different kinds of labor. So this is concrete and useful labor, which Marx defines as, quote, productive activity of a definite kind and exercised with a definite aim, end quote. So he gives the example of tailoring and weaving, right? They're both different kinds of concrete labor. They entail different skills, knowledges, technologies, but they are, he says, quote, each a productive expenditure of human brains, nerves, and muscles, and in this sense are human labor, end quote. Tailoring and weaving are different ways human labor is brought into action. The other important thing here, and you'll see Marx define labor several ways and labor power several ways throughout the book, but as you can see from this definition of labor, it entails brains, nerves, and muscles. So the category of labor is not just referring to physical labor, but all kinds, effective labor, knowledge labor. Okay, then what about useful labor? Could you talk about some examples of concrete useful labor being exchanged for other products of useful labor? Sure, I mean, we do it all the time, right? Anytime I purchase a commodity, I'm trading my particular concrete labor, which is that of a teacher, for somebody else's particular form of concrete labor, and actually for a myriad of forms of concrete labor, right? Like when I go to the grocery store and I buy an apple, I'm exchanging my concrete labor for the concrete labor of, you know, those who are doing the growing, the transportation, the packaging, the advertising, the selling, and so on and so forth. But use values don't confront each other directly as use values. 
they confront each other as exchange values. The value of any commodity is produced by what Marx calls abstract labor. Thus, to talk about labor and value, we have to abstract from concrete labor to abstract labor. He writes, quote, The value of a commodity represents human labor in the abstract, the expenditure of human labor in general. Now, this is a bit different of a category than abstraction as a method of inquiry or analysis because capital actually does produce abstract labor for example, by de-skilling workers so that there is no longer a difference in the knowledge, intelligence, and skill that's used in one production process versus another. This abstract labor is, for the purposes of this book, simple, not skilled. And Marx reduces skilled labor to basically a multiplication of simple labor so that skilled labor represents two times simple labor. And he doesn't give much justification for this. He says we see it confirmed in daily life. I actually think that that's true because it's not a matter of intelligence or particular skills and is rather the fact that capital abstracts labor and erases differences between different kinds of labor. We can see this in the exchange value itself, right, whereby Different forms of concrete useful labor are exchanged for other products of concrete labor. It can represent problems. It's known as the reduction problem, but I don't think that it's really necessary to get into that here because I do think that capital is the system that's abstracting this labor. And it's capitalism, in fact, that is constantly reducing skilled labor to simple labor. We'll see this later on in the book, particularly in chapter 15. There's a side note here about labor as an eternal necessity. So labor isn't a commodity. Only labor power is, right? And it's not just, as I said earlier, right, physical labor. It's the general expenditure of human brains, nerves, and muscles. And so labor, when we get to the chapter on it, He'll talk about a sort of transcendent form of labor, which is transhistorical, and then labor power, which is the commodification of that labor. Okay, so value is a relation, right? In other words, you can have a decreased value with an increase in the quantity of commodities. If the socially necessary labor time required to produce any commodity decreases, what happens is that more commodities are being produced, but they each contain less value in them. So you can actually have an increase in wealth, thinking about wealth as use values, at the same time as a decrease in value or exchange value. This is the case when the productivity of labor is raised through technology, different forms of organization, through education. And if productivity decreases, right, like let's say there's a strike or a supply chain disruption, for example, then the commodities will decrease, but the value of each commodity will increase in general. This holds for all commodities in a given set, he says, not just the ones being produced at that time. So if I one year ago produced pens with socially necessary labor time of one hour to produce one pen, 
and those are still on the market, but now the socially necessary labor time to produce one pen is 30 minutes, then the value of the product that I produced in the past will also fall. So the next section is on the form of value. And again, value isn't a material thing, but a social relations. He writes, quote, the value of commodities is the very opposite of the coarse materiality of their substance. Not an atom of matter enters into its composition. Turn and examine a single commodity by itself as we will, yet insofar as it remains an object of value, it seems impossible to grasp, end quote. Value is therefore not something intrinsic to the commodity. It's a social reality, a social relation that can only be expressed in a relation to another commodity. Now, money is a form of value that is common to everything. It's a form of an expression of value, rather. And Marx is going to show us how it comes into being. And this is important because, as we'll see in the following chapters, and also in the last section, money has a way of mystifying and hiding social relations of labor. So this section is difficult and tedious, but ultimately Marx is showing how money arises out of exchange. The only way you can know the value of one commodity is through ideally or actually exchanging it with another commodity. He's assuming a barter system here to show how the exchange of commodities results in money. You'll also notice, if you've read it, that Marx is not making an anthropological argument. In other words, he's not providing really any justifications or saying that this is how it actually happened in any place or in any time. He's instead setting up a logical schema from which he can show us how money arises in general. So it isn't possible to express the value of linen in linen. For that, we would need something else, a relative commodity. So 20 yards of linen equals one coat. Linen is the relative form and the coat is the equivalent form. The equivalent form, the coat, expresses the value of the relevant form, linen. He begins first with accidental value. When X number of a certain commodity, A, is equal to Y number of a certain commodity, B. It's accidental because it just happens that two different people require each other's commodities. Then there's the relative form of value. While commodities are congealed human labor, which isn't part of the actual body of the commodity, when the commodity is related to another, we grasp its value by its relation to another. The relative value of something may change while the value of the commodity remains the same. So in other words, an increase in coat production will mean the same amount of linen is worth more coats but the value of linen itself hasn't changed, just its relative value to the coat. There's another particularity observed here, which is that human labor in motion creates value, but is not itself value. For that to happen, it has to be congealed into a commodity that has both an exchange value and a use value. He then moves to the equivalent form of value, whereby the commodity expresses the value of the relative commodity. And there are a few contradictions here, as one thing is the expression of something totally different from it qualitatively. So again, there has to be a social relation at the bottom of it. Three particularities of the equivalent commodity are revealed. 
One is that a commodity is congealed labor and the equivalent commodity must appear as abstract labor. But it also has to be a different use value. So concrete labor is manifested as abstract labor. And then finally, private labor takes the form of its opposite, labor directly in its social form. And this is in part an attack on liberalism and the idea that we are each isolated, atomized individuals. Because even under a barter system, for me to understand the value of my commodity, I have to put it in relation to the value of another commodity. In order to see this, though, we have to have a kind of legal equality. And Marx says that this is what prevented Aristotle from fully grasping labor as the basis of exchange value. Because the society he was living in was based on slave labor. And this is an example of Marx's materialism. The social relations of slavery prevented the thought from advancing. So there's a simple or accidental form where X commodity of A equals Y commodity of B. There's the expanded form, which is when X commodity A equals Y commodity B or Z commodity C, etc. So the expanded form shows us how commodity exchange expands under capitalism. And then there's the general form whereby one commodity comes to express the value of all the other commodities. So the general form of value expresses the totality of the world of commodities. Now we get to the money form, which arises as commodity exchange intensifies and expands. The universal equivalent arises out of this explanation by Marx. It is the universal value form. It happens when a commodity serves the exclusive function as a form of value. It cannot be a relative and equivalent form, for that would be a tautology, where $1 equals $1. We all know that money exists, but bourgeois political economy thus far hasn't examined its genesis. It's just sort of taking it at face value. So money becomes the universal equivalent through which all commodities are exchangeable, through a single representation of value in general. It gains a monopoly position in exchange. And this instance, it's gold, which throughout the book, Marx will assume to be the money form. At many points, Marx talks about gold as the money commodity. But today, money is not backed by a gold or even a paper reserve. And in fact, 92% of the world's money is digital. How has money changed since Marx was writing? Yeah, so this is really one of the most significant changes, and we'll get into it a bit during the next episode. But I think the main point still stands, which is that money isn't an imaginary thing. It's a material expression of value, right? Value isn't material. It's not like we can see socially necessary labor time, right? Either at any given moment, the exact amount of socially necessary labor time required for production or the exact amount of how socially useful it is for society. So value needs to be expressed in some way, and that's through money. Even when money is digital, it's still tied to socially necessary labor time. And that's why you can't just keep printing money or lending it out forever. 
And it's really what causes stock market crashes or, you know, the financial sector to collapse. And that's what happened in 2007, 2008. It's what is kind of happening or will happen now, right? There's all this credit circulating, which is basically digital, right? I mean, they're numbers on computers. And they get so out of whack with the actual production that's happening that it all at some point comes crashing down. And so, you know, Marx doesn't discuss credit until volume three, but he calls it a form of fictitious capital. And again, we'll cover this in the next episode, but it's basically a claim on future value. So it's value that circulates ahead of itself. And today, with the digitalization of money, it's so much easier to happen. And it's helped facilitate all kinds of wild speculation and so on. So again, if you think about the housing crash, right? and the collateralized debt obligation, and all of these obscure financial packages that are incredibly convoluted and not tied to any actual production, right? At some point, that has to come crashing down to the reality of socially necessary labor time. So the final section is on the fetishism of the commodity. This section was initially left out of the first German edition of Capital and only later appeared in the second edition. So what is a fetish? It's the belief in the power of an object or in which an object itself possesses something outside of or beyond it, like a spirit, a magical power, and so on. So Marx begins by noting that, quote, a commodity appears at first a very trivial thing and easily understood. Its analysis shows that it is, in reality, a very queer thing, abounding in metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. And this is on the internet, pages 47 through 8, International Publishers, 76 through 7, and Penguin, 163 to 4. It's a mysterious thing because, he continues, in it, the social character of men's labor appears to them as an objective character stamped upon the product of that labor because the relation of the producers to the sum total of their own labor power is presented to them as a social relation existing not between themselves, but between the products of their labor, between things. So its queerness doesn't lie in its use value, but from the form of the commodity itself in which labor is congealed in commodities. When commodity production is generalized, the social relations of labor appear to us as relations between things. specifically. Marx says that it is only when commodities are produced for exchange value that the fetishism arises. So remember, value is socially necessary labor time, but we see value in the form of commodities, not in the form of labor time. So, I mean, what does all this mean? When we enter a store, we spontaneously think we're interacting as private consumers with a series of goods but we're actually interacting with the international working class who has designed, produced, packaged, transported, and so on, the commodities. Value appears as a property not of labor then, but of the commodity itself. So it seems natural that, as Marx writes, one ton of iron and two ounces of gold appear of equal weight despite their different material properties. Private laborers don't come into contact with each other except through exchange. This is why the character of the labor is necessarily hidden. Now, this is the material basis of bourgeois ideology. In other words, ideological explanations of capitalism emerge from the very form of capitalism. They aren't imposed externally, right? 
Although, of course, bourgeois ideology is intentionally and externally imposed through the media, through schools, advertising, and so on. But the crucial point is that bourgeois ideology emerges from the very structure of capitalism itself. It isn't something used retroactively to justify capitalism. The mystification, the fetishism emerges out of capitalism itself. This is one of Marx's primary critiques of bourgeois political economy at the time, and it's something that we still see today. In essence, in order to present capitalism as a natural system rather than a historical one, and therefore a contingent one that can be negated, the bourgeoisie reads capitalism back into pre-capitalist history. This is familiar to us today. People, by nature, are atomized, self-interested, and only looking out for themselves. This is a liberal, and now neoliberal, conception of humanity's way of being in the world and of relating to each other. Of course, there's a whole swath of anthropological and historical research, not to mention other forms of knowledge like narratives, stories, and so on, that obviously contradicts this. But the point is that bourgeois political economy doesn't engage in any abstraction in order to separate historical periods. The idea of the individual is an 18th century ideal that's then read back into the past. As Marx says in the introduction to the Grundrisse notebooks, they project the individual back into the past, not as a historic result, but as history's point of departure. This, by the way, is also one of Marx's critiques of Proudhon, who takes the individual for granted and as a starting and ending point for society. So a contradiction here is that while bourgeois political economy tries to affirm capitalism as a natural and original state of society, capitalism itself is based on a constant revolution of the means of production, which Marx and Engels address in the Communist Manifesto. The contradiction plays itself out in neoliberalism as well where we're told that capitalism is natural and original, but at the same time, we're told that we need to disrupt capitalism through gadgets, apps, and so on, right? And why would we need to disrupt it if it's a natural form from the past and the disruptions are supposed to free us from the burden of that past? This is also the way in which capitalism masks personal dependence and interdependence. This is important because it shows how fetishism, again, arises out of capital itself. It isn't just propagated through the media and the schools, but it's an economic foundation. We'll see Marx critiquing liberal individualism again and again throughout the book, and this has incredible relevance to us now because this is precisely the liberalism and neoliberalism that we live with today. In a sense, the struggles against sweatshops and for quote-unquote fair trade try and succeed to a certain extent to reveal the labor relations at the heart of commodity exchange. By showing the conditions of work and the lives of workers, they force the actual production process into the light and show that it's this social production that matters rather than any commodified object and that the commodified object is the result of labor. But of course, it's limited because it isn't trying to do away with capitalist relations, but merely make them fairer. So... I think a better example might be what Lenin discussed in What is to be Done. And he was talking about factory exposures in which workers from factories would write exposures of the conditions of their factories. They would be published in the party newspaper. And then the individual atomized workers could then see the common conditions that existed in the factories. And therefore, a common consciousness could be forged. But he also critiqued them because they were limited to the trade union struggle and just the struggle for better wages rather than 
the political struggle against capitalism itself. So at the last few pages, Marx turns to a vision of communism. I'm going to read a few important passages from these pages. He begins, this is on the internet, page 51, international publishers, 82 to 3, and Penguin, 171 to 2. Quote, Let us now picture to ourselves, by way of change, a community of free individuals carrying on their work with the means of production in common, in which the labor power of all the different individuals is consciously applied as the combined labor power of the community. The total product of our community is a social product. One portion serves as fresh means of production and remains social, but another portion is consumed by the members as means of subsistence. A distribution of this portion amongst them is consequently necessary. The mode of this distribution will vary with the productive organization of the community and the degree of historical development attained by the producers, end quote. So the total product is a social product, right? And there has to be some way to divide it between the means of production and the means of subsistence. We have to distribute it somehow. This means that As Marx continues, the social relations of the individual producers with regard both to their labor and to its products are in this case perfectly simple and intelligible, and that with regard not only to production but also to distribution. Now, this is the first gesture towards communism we encounter in the book, and as you continue to read it, I encourage you to pay attention to the different sort of gestures that he makes. So here we have communism as a community of free individuals working in common and working consciously to labor. In other words, it's intentional rather than chaotic like under capitalism. The total products of labor are social and the products are divided with one part going to workers and the other part going back into production so that society can reproduce or expand. Marx doesn't specify exactly what this distribution will be and says it will depend on the productive capacity and development of society. So in other words, if the productive capacity is very low, then more of the social product will go towards reproducing and developing the means of production. Whereas if the productive capacity is high, then more might go towards the means of subsistence. Yet there's no fetishism in either case because workers are working in common and organized socially rather than through private individuals, corporations, and so on. Finally, Marx writes, quote, The life process of society, which is based on the process of material production, does not strip off its mystical veil until it is treated as production by freely associated men and is consciously regulated by them in accordance with the settled plan. So in other words, commodity fetishism and capitalist ideology can't be totally eliminated without two requirements. One, production is done by free association, and two, it's organized according to a settled plan. Now, at first, this may seem a bit contradictory, but that's only if we assume that free association is when everyone has the freedom to do whatever they want. If that's the case, then the idea of a settled plan or centralized planning contradicts such freedom. But for Marx, communism implies both freedom and planning, and we have to understand both of them together in a new kind of configuration. You know, oftentimes people will critique actually existing socialism by emphasizing only the free association aspect of it. Free association means that no one is forced to sell their labor power to another individual under threat of starvation or death, for Marx. Production has to be organized and centrally planned in order to provide the needs and desires of society. This can't happen spontaneously through atomized or autonomous co-ops. 
The key thing here is that the planning takes place centrally and it revolves around society's needs rather than taking place at the individual level in order merely to make a profit. So that brings us to the end of chapter one. Our next episode will cover chapters two through three on exchange and money, and then we'll be done with part one of the book. Chapter two is on exchange and it's short, but really interesting. And chapter three is on money and it's longer, a bit more difficult, but only after covering money can we discover what capital is. And again, just keep pushing through it. If you don't understand everything, I think that's perfectly natural. And hopefully the next episode will clear that up. Thanks everybody for listening. Solidarity. Solidarity.